Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal, and I want to welcome you to a very special episode of An Honorable Profession. My conversation with Dr. Aditi Malik, the director of the COVID-19 Response Command Center for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Malik answered questions about the current COVID landscape in her state and across the country, what we need to know about the Delta variant, vaccines and breakthrough cases, and what we can expect in the coming months. We also talked about her path into the public health profession and what it's been like on the front lines of the pandemic for the last 18 months. I hope this episode does for you what it did for me, answer some important questions, and appreciate anew the inspiring healthcare workers who are still taking care of us and working to beat COVID. Dr. Aditi Malik, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I've really been looking forward to talking to you, unfortunately. Not that I don't love to talk to you, but I've been looking forward because I'm I'm scared right now. And I think a lot of America is scared. And so I'm so happy to have you uh, with us to answer some of our questions about where we are with the uh, Delta variant and COVID. And then, um, you know, just about how this whole past year and a half has been for you and some of the lessons we should learn from it. But, you know, I'd love to just really dive right in right now. Like I said, I'm sure that many of us, I sure am very anxious about the Delta variant. I'm anxious about the rise in cases generally. I'm anxious about breakthrough cases and that we might be going backwards here. So let me just start kind of what should we be concerned about and what should we be watching for? Great questions. And I will reiterate again, thank you so much for having me. And I, I, I certainly hope to be able to assuage some concerns, but also point out areas where I think we all should should be and need to continue to be really vigilant. You, you mentioned the Delta variant, so maybe I'll start there. Folks may be aware of this, but just since about Memorial Day, when the Delta variant was single digit percentage of the cases that were being sequenced in the United States, the Delta variant now makes up 83% of cases being sequenced in the United States, which means it is far more aggressive, far more transmissible than any variant we have seen yet. Um, The wild type variant, the alpha, the alpha, et cetera, et cetera. That said, the cases of the Delta variant that we are seeing are far and away in people who are unvaccinated. The vaccines that we have available are safe, tested, effective, and they do a really good job at preventing cases, hospitalizations, and death, which is really what they are intended to do. Now, I will say no vaccine is 100% effective, um, including the ones that we have, the mRNA vaccines, as well as the single-dose J&J vaccines. But what we do know is that even though the vaccines are not 100% effective, 
they are very, very effective. And so vaccine breakthrough cases, which you mentioned, are not, they're not unexpected, right? And I, I think we should all acknowledge that, you know, at the outset, when we were hearing percentage effectiveness of the different vaccines, none of them were 100. And, and we knew that going in. And so to see, to see cases in people who are vaccinated, I will say is still rare, but not, it's never going to be zero. The other thing that I think is really important to point out is that your risk with the Delta variant is directly correlated to levels of vaccination in your area and levels of viral transmission in your area. So, for example, there are places in the country where cases are high and cases caused by the Delta variant are also really high. And many of those places have low vaccine coverage. So in those areas, we're going to continue to see likely viral spread. In areas, by contrast, in areas with high vaccine coverage, we're seeing relatively low rates of disease transmission. And so in, in those areas, the chances of coming in close contact, let's say, with somebody who has COVID or the coronavirus and is infectious is actually relatively low. The reason I mention that is because you're probably seeing in the news things like LA County or the Bay Area starting to, and now New Orleans and other places, starting to reconsider or require masks in indoor public places. And that's really just a reflection of what the local viral transmission dynamics are, regardless of whether someone is vaccinated or unvaccinated. That's helpful. And I'd love to stick with the vaccinated folks for a minute, because that's I think I suspect that most of our listeners are uh, in that camp. So so two questions on that one is, I mean, just, again, you know, with a breakthrough through cases, what we're reading is that that even if people who are vaccinated do contract COVID, it's going to be generally more mild. But we're also seeing some stories about people, you know, there is a there is a number to your point of, you know, of people who are vaccinated who have died. So, you know, can you put that in context? I guess that'll be my first question. I'll come back with a second one. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the question to make, to make sure I'm getting it is for people that are fully vaccinated for vaccine breakthroughs, let's put in context what a breakthrough case would mean for those people. Um, you are absolutely correct. And I think the most important thing that I would emphasize there is that what we are seeing is that vaccine breakthrough cases present with milder disease. So much less likely to be hospitalized, much less likely to die of COVID in people that have been vaccinated. Okay. And it's like you said, there's just, but there are these outliers and that's just as part of everything. That's just part yes. of vaccines. And there's part a lot of, you know, of ongoing analysis into who are those people that are the breakthrough cases, right? And it's really important to do the, the demographic slice and dice, if you will, to better understand who are the people with either what, um, and this gets into a bit of a conversation around booster shots, but who are the people who are more likely to see breakthrough infections? And this is why you're seeing some chatter about booster shots, particularly in people who are immunocompromised, which is medical ease for saying people who have immune systems that don't function at full force, whether um, because of an autoimmune, autoimmune disease or because of certain medications that they take or cancer and the like, as well as consideration of booster shots in people who are elderly. And that's just a reflection of the fact that people who are older tend to mount in general less robust immune responses to any vaccine, including the COVID vaccine. 
Okay. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I, I was going to ask you about, you know, what we as vaccinated folks sh- should be doing, right, to try to help any any spread. I assume that part of the answer to that is to try to get more people vaccinated. Hundred percent. That is, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I would say, uh, I would say two things. One is, first of all, to everyone who's listening who has been vaccinated, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are protecting yourself, your loved ones, your community, and that's incredibly important. And the, the, the next step you can take after having yourself been vaccinated is to talk to your friends and family and community members about getting vaccinated. And, you know, Debbie, at the outset, you mentioned politics. The vac- vaccines and the entire vaccination campaign and rollout has been so utterly politicized in a way that I think has been so damaging to public health in this country, and just uh, uh, not to mention our mental health in this country. But politics aside, I think just conversations in ways that you feel comfortable, in ways that feel approachable. I'm not recommending accosting strangers on the street, asking them if they've been vaccinated, but people that are in your inner circle who you care about. What all of the data has shown is that people in particular, want to hear from healthcare providers, doctors and nurses, in particular, their own family physician or their own nurse, as well as their family and friends who have been vaccinated. So that's one is to encourage and not even encourage, actually, I I don't mean this to be proselytizing. I think people need access to good information. And this is is my second point. You may have seen the Surgeon General put out an advisory last Tuesday on health misinformation the top line of which is really that health misinformation is one of the single biggest threats of getting out of this pandemic effectively. Um, and the Kaiser Family Foundation in a recent study found that of folks who are unvaccinated, I think it was two thirds of them believe in some sort of conspiracy theory or have at least given thought to some sort of conspiracy theory about the vaccines. Right. And so my first charge to people who are vaccinated is to ask your friends and family about it. My second charge is to be really thoughtful about the information that you are consuming um, and the information that you are seeing around you. And I, my call to action would be I, I, I would encourage you to try and stop misinformation if you see it happening, right? Um, technology has enabled the spread of misinformation at a scale and sophistication that we have not seen previously, right? Misinformation campaigns aren't new. I think what's new about this one is the speed, scale, and sophistication of it, enabled by technology, enabled by politics, enabled by a number of things. But to the extent that listeners are are able to spot that and help stamp it out in some ways by responding in kind with fact-based information, I think can be really helpful in, in this phase of our vaccination efforts. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I am curious, we are talking you know, on a, in a week where we're starting to see some prominent Republicans come out um, and start encouraging people to get vaccinated, uh, just to pick one, Governor DeSantis in Florida, who's not been known for his, you know, being out there, you know, doing this. So um, I'm just kind of curious uh, about, you know, what are, are you what are you seeing in North Carolina in terms of the people who are encouraging people to get vaccinated? I'm hearing you talk about trusted messengers, doctors, I assume, you know, politicians fall into that for some people. So are you seeing a shift in kind of the, the language or what people are saying in North Carolina, or even around the country? And, and what do you think is driving that change? Yeah, great question. I think trusted messengers are so, so critical. And this is not a this is not a Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives, young people versus old people, black versus white, right? This is a, 
This pandemic has crippled our country. It has crippled our economy. And that's an everybody problem. I think we have to acknowledge different communities have been disproportionately impacted from a health perspective and economically, but it has crippled the country in a number of ways. And that requires a response from everybody, right? Everybody of all stripes and shapes and colors. To your question about trusted messengers, no one is off the table. <laughs> Let me put it that way. We've seen in North Carolina specifically, uh, the faith community has really stepped up. We have seen educators really step up, both K through 12 and in higher education. Certainly, we've seen healthcare professionals step up. Um, primary care providers in particular are the largest growing segment of vaccine providers in North Carolina. We've made tremendous strides with the pharmacies um, and pharmacists. The thought being the more and more vaccination can be incorporated into the regular fabric of people's lives, the hope is that it, the more accessible, normalized, depoliticized it can become. Right? I'm going to my doctor's office anyway, might as well get my COVID shot. I'm going to XYZ corner pharmacy to get my meds filled, might as well get my COVID vaccine. I'm going to this summer music festival or hey, I'm going to the train station, might as well get my COVID vaccine. And so to, to your point about trusted messengers, there's quite a bit of data around who the trusted messengers are in terms of professional categories. But really, every, anyone could be a trusted messenger because when you ask people among the top five of trusted messengers, regardless of demographic, immigration status, age, income level, education, at least in the state of North Carolina, and I think this is true in the national data as well, among the top five of trusted messengers are friends and family who have gotten vaccinated. And so you could be a trusted messenger to someone in your community and not think about it or not even know it. Another really interesting example that I'll just highlight, because you brought up Governor DeSantis, and I will say I am a native Floridian, is Governor Hutchinson in Arkansas. So Arkansas over the last few weeks has seen pretty dramatic rise in their cases. And Governor Hutchinson set out on uh, a town hall type of concept called Community COVID Conversations. So six cities, I think, in the last week, each one had a vaccination clinic on site. And they were really designed to be town halls. And that meant anti-vaxxers showed up, pro-vaxxers showed up. And rather than Governor Hutchinson be the person to respond to an anti-vax claim, um, it was actually a pastor, a medical doctor, or a community member responding to another community member to objections sort of amongst themselves. And so, you know, for the, for the cohort of Americans or residents in this country for whom a government messenger is never going to be the right one. There's something really powerful about the message being, the message not being, hey, this is the government telling you to get vaccinated, but rather members of a community telling one another about why they got vaccinated or sharing trusted, accurate information about vaccination that helps combat misinformation. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it, I mean, I hear what you're saying about pharmacies and about just making that access so much better, which makes all the sense in the world. It feels like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, at this point, with maybe some very exceptions around the country and very hard to get to places, the access is pretty much there. So it feels like, from where I'm sitting, that this is a really a hesitancy problem, right? It less it, At one point, it really was an access problem. It feels like that may be less so. Is that, is that fair? And if, if so, you know... 
Is that I what think so. It actually really depends by demographic. So if you look across the country, we are still, if you look at share of population vaccinated, generally speaking, I think you're, you're spot on. If you look at share of population vaccinated by different racial and ethnic subgroups, we have still under vaccinated relative to population size in the Hispanic Latinx community in the Black and African-American community, in the American Indian and Alaska Native community. And when you dig deeper, at least in the state of North Carolina, when we looked at the data, there are people break down into pro, swing, and anti. So the pro folks are, yep, want to get vaccinated, just haven't figured out how yet, right? Of I don't speak English, concerned about the effect on my immigration status, concerned about the cost, work multiple jobs, et cetera. Like people for whom it truly is an access problem. And that that segment of the population is getting smaller thanks to a lot of the things that you mentioned, right? Vaccine supply is pretty readily available. I think the number of locations where people can get vaccinations is is has grown pretty dramatically since January. But there's still a segment of the population. I I don't want to discount that there is a segment of the population for whom barriers, be they financial, transportation, language, et cetera, still exist. There's then this swing category of folks who are a little on the fence, right? Persuadable, the so-called movable middle, haven't gotten vaccinated yet, but want more information about it. Really, I want I want to understand really what is the impact on fertility? Really, what what are the side effects going to be? Oh, what is it going to feel like? How fast were these made? Right, a lot of very legitimate concerns that people have had, and those are the folks that are not anti-vax. They just haven't gotten vaccinated because they don't quite feel comfortable with the vaccines yet, and they need more information to 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 maybe get there. And then there's the category of quote unquote anti-vaxxers, right, or antis. Um, in our data, the anti-category is no more than about 20%. And so there are the pro and swing category of people. And I think to your point, we've largely solved the access problem, but we haven't solved it for everybody in every community. And so I do think there's still work to be done there. And I think the two biggest, you know, really the bifurcation there is in the pro group. How do you make it fast? free, easy, accessible, right? Vaccine is easy and everywhere to get to. That's been our motto in North Carolina is easy and everywhere. And then for the swing group, it's really an information campaign. And that information may or may not come from the State Department of Public Health or the local health department. And that's really where the trusted messengers come in, both to share accurate fact-based information, but also to help kind of combat these myths or misinformation that gets perpetuated. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And I and you're I'm, that that's, that's I'm sure that's fair. There are barriers that just you know still need to be overcome for to access for so many things. So why vac- would vaccines be different, right? So um, that makes a lot of sense. I am curious. Another vaccine question. I, I'm fortunate to have kids who are old enough to be vaccinated. So you know that was a really good feeling. I have plenty of friends who have younger kids. Any words for for them? What are you telling families? As we saw that President Biden made an announcement that it was soon, but we'll wait for the scientists for younger kids? What, what's your thinking on that? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. I think for the, as we're seeing case rates rise, I think I, I, I am the mother of a toddler. So I, I say that with the perspective of having an 18 month old that 
kids under 12 right now are really relying on parents, adults, caregivers, et cetera, to be the barrier between them and the virus, right? So the more people around them that are vaccinated, the more protected they are. So the pandemic is very much not over for children and it's not over for any of us, but they are really relying on people over the age of 12 who are eligible to vaccinate for vaccination to really protect them. And so I think what I would say both to myself and to um, fellow parents, guardians, caregivers of children not yet eligible for vaccination is continuing to mask. It will be very important. And then we are all waiting really with bated breath on the clinical trials that certainly I know that Pfizer and Moderna have running for much younger children. And then I believe that data on that is anticipated in the fall before they would then file for any sort of EUA. Okay. Is there news on also when the getting out of the emergency use, even for the older people, like what that timeline is? Yeah, great question. So I think the next big news we're likely to see out of the FDA will be the extension of Moderna's emergency use authorization down to age 12, like what we saw for Pfizer back in, I think it was April or May. And then after that, I I am anticipating, I think the latest I heard is it would be fall winter timeframe. So before the end of the year, but not before the school year starts, before the end of the calendar year, excuse me, that we would see some more information about the um, sort of final approval of, of Pfizer or sort of full official approval. The issue there is, and I, I heard um, acting Commissioner Woodcock speak to this from the FDA, of not going so fast that people lose faith in the process, right? It has to be an apolitical, objective, scientific process. So what we know is Pfizer has submitted on a rolling basis, they submit data for full approval. That data gets evaluated, examined, assessed on a rolling basis. But there is a a very public and very clear tension between going too fast to approve these vaccines, where there's still this narrative about, oh my goodness, warp speed, What's wrong with them? They must have cut corners, right? This narrative about going too fast and then this counter narrative of, oh, but you're going too slow. And, and if you were to go faster, right? I think m- many people believe, myself included, that I think one of the next big jumps we'll see in vaccination rates in the country is when the vaccines get full approval. Um, I do think people pay attention to those. I also think that it creates uh, a catalyst really for employers, businesses, et cetera, to really consider and likely on stronger footing, be able to mandate vaccinations in some way. For example, I say this as a healthcare provider, for example, every healthcare institution I have ever worked in has mandated flu vaccinations. Unless I file for some sort of exemption or I'm willing to sign a waiver and or I'm willing to wear a mask for the entirety of flu season. And I would anticipate that once we get to full approval with with the Pfizer vaccine and the um, Moderna hasn't yet filed their paperwork for this, at least as of last week when I had checked. Um, but when we get to full approval of at least one of the vaccines that I think we may see workplaces and certain employers kind of fall into that posture of more starkly mandating vaccines. And actually 90 plus healthcare systems have already said that they would do that once the vaccines reach full approval. Yeah. And do you, I mean, when we're thinking about some of these, you, you've mentioned the jurisdictions that are thinking about mandatory or at least at least where I actually where I live in California that we're on a 
back to a voluntary, but it's a strongly encouraged um, in, indoor masks. Uh, but I know there are jurisdictions thinking about mandatory masks. There are, like you said, private sector employers, universities, others. You know, there's the vaccine passport conversation. You know, do you do you have you know, what is your take as a healthcare provider about, I guess, you know, what, what's, what would be the most effective, you know, or what you'd like to see or, and, and but within the context of the political reality that we're living in, like what, you know, how do you balance those things, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the line to tread has really been, it's hard to make blanket policy for the entire United States because, and, and politics aside, devoid of politics for a second, the viral transmission dynamics are different in different places. And so, you know, I, my take would be like, so for example, I'm in Florida right now. I I live, I, I live in Northern Virginia. I happen to be in Florida right now visiting my family. Just last week, Florida was responsible for 20% of new cases in America, despite representing less than 10% of the United States population, right? So a disproportionate number of cases of new cases were coming from the state of Florida. Um, and what I have said to my own family, all of whom are, all of us who are eligible to be vaccinated are fully vaccinated. What I have said is I think we should all return to wearing masks when we go to indoor public places. So I have told my parents, my in-laws who are all in their sixties, my husband, my sister, when we go to, when we go to Publix, you know, like when we go to the grocery store, when you're inside of a gas station, when you go to the bank, if you're at the library, I, I want us all wearing masks because the vaccination rate in Broward County, where I am right now, is under 60%. And the case rate here has gone up pretty markedly in the last four weeks. And so I realize that may be a somewhat unsatisfactory answer. I get uh, what I'm what I'm getting at is it's hard. It's I think it's hard certainly is going to be very challenging politically to say, not just politically, I think just the will of the country is such that I think it's going to be very challenging to say we need to go back to a place where everybody's wearing masks indoors. Um, And frankly, I don't think that's necessary in a lot of places, right? Vermont is over 80% of adults are vaccinated in Vermont, you know? And so Vermont looks very different from Missouri right now, or looks very different from Mississippi right now. And so what I would say is to the extent that, to the extent that folks are, concerned about it, I, I think that the two biggest things that I personally am looking at to the extent that it's helpful to listeners is what is the local vaccination rate and what does the what does the viral transmission look like in my local area? And I'm using that to decide both for myself and kind of uh, strongly encouraging my family how heavily they should lean into other prevention measures, right? Like, yes, keep washing your hands, but uh, sit, yeah, Always wash your hands, by the way. That's a good PSA. (laughs) um, How strongly they should be leaning back into things like six feet of physical distancing and and masking. And just to follow up question on that, you said 80% Vermont. Is there a number that, you know, I keep hearing, you know, what what is that? Senate 70 is, what what number are we looking for in our communities? (laughs) Yeah, what's the herd immunity number? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've seen estimates anywhere from 70 to 90 something percent. What's tricky about that is the Delta variant. The vaccine, the virus is pretty smart, right? By the uh, this particular viruses in general, but this one in particular, right? SARS-CoV-2, literally exists to mutate and outsmart vaccines and and human immune systems, right? And so, estimates of herd immunity get a little bit tricky as the as new variants crop up. And new variants become more aggressive and more transmissible. To maybe bring that point full circle, 
the threshold for herd immunity gets higher and higher, the more aggressive and transmissible the virus is, right? And so what might have been, I, you know, back in the spring, we might have heard herd immunity thresholds of 70 or 80%. That threshold realistically is likely to be much higher because we're dealing with a more aggressive and transmissible form of the virus now. Right. That makes sense. And I guess, I mean, I, I, I want to take away the good news, which is you're reiterating what we're hearing, which is that the, the, so far the, the vaccines are holding, right? So, I mean, that vaccines is really amazing. Work. Yes, <laughs> amazing yes, news. yes. Let me, let, let that be the biggest takeaway, which is the vaccines that we have available in this country are effective against the virus that is circulating here. The single best thing we can do to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities is to get vaccinated. And to quote CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, this is largely becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, and what is so heartbreaking to me is that one of the many heartbreaking things about this whole thing has been to watch our country where vaccines are effective and are readily available uh, for the most part with some things we'll be talked about when the rest of the world is still, you know, waiting on vaccines. And, you know, it's just, it's, you know, I know you've done work in India and other places around the world. I mean, what's your take on kind of America and our response to this versus what's happening in the rest of the world? I will take this opportunity to say that I lost an uncle in India to COVID. I know many listeners may have lost uh, a loved one or a friend or a community member to COVID. And so the, um, it's, a, it's, uh, it's very real. And I've used the term morally incongruent. It is, it is morally incongruent to me that, and you've likely seen the news, it is morally incongruent to me that we in this country now have a surplus of tens of millions of vaccines that are about to, they're going to expire. They're going to expire based on current recommendations or guidelines around expiration dates. They're going to expire before Labor Day or around Labor Day when people are, people are dying in droves around the world without access to vaccination. And, and, you know, like we have to offer people a million dollar lottery to get vaccinated when, when elsewhere in the world, all people want is vaccines, right? It's, it's heartbreaking. It's so, it's so, so heartbreaking. And I will give credit to the Biden administration and credit to the federal government for really working hard to, to navigate what I understand to be a very tricky legal and regulatory environment about sending vaccines overseas and working really hard to make that a streamlined, centralized, well-coordinated process. And so I will say, at least in the state of North Carolina, I can't speak to other states, but just in the last week or two, we sent off our first batch of vaccines for international donation. So I do think there is very real effort being made to help the rest of the world, um, which feels like it is in the spirit of the best of America to be helping our brethren around the world who have not fared as well so far. I couldn't agree with you more of where you started of just, it is heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking that, that people would, people would literally die for the opportunity to be vaccinated. And we have people here that have just said no. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I have family uh, overseas as well by marriage. And um, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, it's stark to me. I want to ask you about kind of as we go forward, obviously, we're not through with this one. (laughs) We've got a lot of things to do, including, as you said, um, you know, thinking about continuing to vaccinate and what, you know, some of the stuff might look like as the variant mutates. But, you know, a couple questions. One is, what do you think we need to be thinking about in terms of testing, I know you've been a going forward, you've been a really advocate, you know, outspoken proponent for testing early on. And I think even recently, I've seen you talk about, you know, testing for asymptomatic people at schools and regular antigen testing, kind of what why is that important kind of managing this going forward? There's so many layers to that. I think there is. So it's important epidemiologically, because that's how we're going to understand from a surveillance testing perspective, that's how we're going to understand where the next big case surges are happening. So that's things like wastewater surveillance or mass asymptomatic testing, which really we're do- we are doing much less of now because many, many more people are vaccinated. But that kind of surveillance testing allows us to identify where the hot spots really are either emerging or uh, frankly have already emerged. The other is sort of I would like clinical or diagnostic testing in people who are symptomatic already or who have been in close contact with someone. Um, And I think we'll start to see that more and more, you know, if you think about the way the flu works, more and more like the rapid flu test, if you went to an urgent care, your primary care doctor's office or to an emergency department. And so I think we are going to need an armamentarium in our, our toolkit for testing is going to need to be able to do a lot of different things. It's going to need to serve a surveillance purpose. It's going to need to serve a screening and diagnostic purpose and then a clinical purpose. And so when we think about what does the future of testing look like, we need to make sure that we have different modalities of testing that are able to actually fulfill those different types of needs. We also need testing in different places, right? And the testing needs to be in places where people are. So um, sewer sheds are a great one because, you know, everybody goes to the bathroom, but testing in workplaces, testing in schools, certainly testing in healthcare facilities, especially in places where people are not vaccinated. Um, It's going to be increasingly important. Yeah. And with at the risk of asking you another really big question that probably, you know, warrants a whole hour by itself. But what do you think about what we've learned and what we need to do for the next, the next pandemic? Oh, man, yeah, that was um, <laughs> yeah, great question. Great question. I, um, I will say I think about this one a lot, but I, I will touch on what I what are big themes. One health equity, and equity period. I think I think the murder of George Floyd the murder of Breonna Taylor, the, the civil rights renaissance, really, led by activists from Black Lives Matter and many other coalitions in the midst of the pandemic of the century has laid bare incredible, incredible inequities in, in the way our healthcare system works, but really just in the way our country works across housing, education, economic opportunity, climate right? Major policy issues, but um, health being at the forefront during a public health emergency. So when I think about what have we, what have we learned that we got to do better next time is pay attention to those, invest in underinvested communities, 
and collect data at a minimum, right? You treasure what you measure. And if you can't measure it, you can't fix it. And so I think um, one of the major things we've learned is to pay attention to race, ethnicity, and demographic data in the pandemic, but really in a lot of different aspects, certainly of clinical care. And we could be doing the same thing for housing, education, economic opportunity, et cetera, right? So one I would say is health equity. Another big theme, and I sort of touched on this when I mentioned health equity, but is data. For very early on in the pandemic, we were crippled by public health systems that were so antiquated because they had been underinvested in, right? We were fighting a 21st century pandemic with 1980s infrastructure. And so, and, and again, kudos to the, to the federal government and the all of government response and the massive infusion of capital that's now going into public health infrastructure and funding of data systems and the workforce of the future. Um, but that I think is a major learning, right? Is just, we need to, we need to up our game in order to be ready. And there's an upping our game in data, which was going to be my second point, but I'd say, you know, points 2A, 2B, 2C, kind of all under that umbrella are upping our game in data, upping our workforce development, and updating our public health networks, right? Just the, the governance infrastructure that supports public health in order to be ready. And then the third and final thing I will say is, and I say this as a healthcare provider, I think the pandemic has also laid bare the disconnect between healthcare and public health. We have, as, as many people have coined, we have in the United States a sick care system, not a healthcare system, right? We have a system that will put all sorts of lines and tubes and all sorts of IV poles into you once you're sick, but does a pretty crummy job of helping you stay healthy in the first place. And where your zip code is a better determinant of your life expectancy than anything else is pretty shameful for the wealthiest country in the world. And so we have seen, uh, again, a healthcare system that has evolved in its own way to deliver uh, diagnostic tests and treatments, wholly divorced of a public health system that is really about preventing illness and uh, disease prevention, illness, and injury prevention. And so what I would love to see coming out of this, and I think I don't think I'm alone in this, and I think we're headed in this direction anyway, is really a better integration, collaboration linkages between public health and our healthcare system to one that really moves us more towards prevention rather than playing whack-a-mole response firefighting all the time. Yeah, yeah. Those are all such great points. And I mean, what's funny, not funny, but interesting to me is that, you know, we work on a lot of different issues, healthcare being one, but, um, you know, whether it's broadband or education, the themes you're talking about in equity and data and kind of linkages and connections, you know, is really true across so many issue areas, actually. So um, I think that, but I, but it makes so much sense in healthcare in particular. And it was a great segue, your answer too, is, you know, you, this is our podcast, Honorable Profession, is we often mostly interview elected officials, but public health, you know, these folks who are in public service in other ways, besides elected office are certainly at the forefront of, of these things. And so what was it uh, in your life that made you maybe go into medicine and, you know, uh, generally, but it's more specifically about wanting to do something in the public health space? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. Uh, I am the proud child of Indian immigrants. I was born at the county hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My parents were small business owners, so they uh, 
both born in India, briefly lived in the United Kingdom, and then came here for the American dream, right? They wanted their kids to have a better life than they did. And they vacationed from London to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, decided that they liked the weather here better, and they moved. That was it. My mom was five months pregnant with me when they got here. And like I said, I was born at the county hospital. They uh, used all their savings to buy a small motel in Fort Lauderdale and were small business owners, had no health insurance. Um, And when my dad was 42, I was 11 going on 12, he got sick. And um, my mom and dad had to pay for chemotherapy infusions in cash. And I saw firsthand a medical system that had failed, right? In the greatest country in the world, in the land of opportunity, failed my dad, failed my family. And I remember feeling so helpless, helpless over cancer, powerless over the financial strain, powerless over the grief when my dad passed away. And that's what fueled me to dedicate my life to making sure that no other kid and no other family ever felt that kind of helplessness. That's why I became a doctor. That's, that's, why, I, that's why I went to med school. And then to your question about public health, in college, I majored in social studies, which sidebar, you know, tell your mom that you're going to college to study social studies. She was like, didn't you do that in third grade? <laughs> um, but anyway, I majored in social studies with a minor in health policy. And that's really where I fell in, in love with the idea of being what I lovingly call a doctor plus. So one who takes care of patients and families, which I am privileged to still get to do today, but also work on helping fix the healthcare system more broadly having seen very personally the way that it doesn't work. And so, you know, that's taken me a a lot of interesting places, Um, trained in uh, residency training. Then I served in the federal government at CMS, worked in consulting, and now most recently with the state of North Carolina on on COVID-19 response, all because I just, I want to help. I want to be of service. And I've had the tremendous good fortune of a loving family and incredible education, professional opportunities, and really kind mentors. And I just, I want to pay that forward. Yeah, well, I'm um, so sorry about your dad and that experience. But, you know, I'm so grateful to you for turning that experience into something that is helping so many people. And, you know, that's, and I I just, I I want to also just spend a second saying that um, I often tell elected officials, and, and it's certainly no less true for you, how grateful we all are for you all being out on the front lines to this whole thing, because, you know, because I'm sure when you went into medicine, you did not think that was a political decision, <laughs> you know, and and really just the the political nature of this whole thing, and you know, and public health officials across the country getting you know threatened and getting you know just hammered and um and, and having to quit their jobs, and I you know I worry a little bit about you know recruiting more people into whether it's public health or into elected office. So a thank you, and and b just from your perspective you know, how is this, how has this time been for you? And, and, you know, do you have kind of advice for people who might want to go into the, the, the profession after you? Yeah, thank you for asking. I will say I, I'm also a new mom. So I, I, I mentioned I have an 18 month old. And so when I look back on, um, on the last 18 months, I often ask myself, pandemic or new parenthood? Like, is my, <laughs> is my life this way because of the pandemic or because I have a small child? Which is to say, tired harried, overwhelmed, you know, much of the time. But um, I remind myself every day to live in a place of gratitude and abundance of how unbelievably lucky I am to get to do what I do. First of all, to 
to have a roof over my head, to have a job, to not worry about how I'm going to feed my family is in and of itself a privilege that I, I try very hard to not take for granted. On top of which, I get to do a job that I find really fulfilling with colleagues who I am endlessly inspired by. And so I, I, I'm, if nothing else, grateful to get to do this kind of work. And what I would say to anybody coming, coming into the fray, first of all, thank you for even considering it. We collectively are, are yearning for your talents and are so, so humbled that you would consider joining us in this battle. And thank you for bringing your light and your enthusiasm and your energy to a cause that so desperately needs it. I would be remiss if I didn't also point out, so recently the CDC in one of their MMWRs, which is a Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, published a survey of over 20,000 public health care workers across state and local public health about their own mental health in, in, the, in the, just the preceding two weeks of when people were surveyed. Over 50% of people reported at least one sign of depression, anxiety, or PTSD. So I, I, I by no means want to minimize what is a very, very real mental health burden on a very overtaxed, often harassed workforce who has, as I said, dealt with literally the pandemic of a century. So to anyone who is listening, who has worked in any way on all things COVID, which I think is most people, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you have done to get us to where we are today. And as I said to anyone that's thinking about joining the fray, welcome. Call me. I'm happy to, I'm happy to help coach you through it. It is, um, I do it all over again. I love it. I love it. Any chance you might, uh, given that what I do for a living, I have to ask, uh, any chance you might consider a run for public office at some point? Uh, yeah, I, I, again, thank you for the question. I, I want to be of service. I, like I said, have had tremendous opportunity in my, my own life. And I, I think being a public servant, whether elected or otherwise, um, is really one very powerful way to do that. So I would absolutely consider it. I couldn't agree more. It is an honorable profession. No, no doubt about it. (laughs) Well, Dr. Malik, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate you calming me down personally. uh, And I'm sure our listeners will also really benefit from, um, you know, the the information you gave us uh, about where we are and where we're headed with the pandemic. And also just, uh, you know, your your inspiration um, and your dedication is just so appreciated. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.